0: Amazing Grace. Newton was born in 1725. He died December 21st, just before Christmas 1807. He was 82 years old, which in his day, the average lifespan was less than 50. He indeed lived to a ripe old age. He not only lived a long life, but if you you need to read his story if you haven't, because his biography is so encouraging. Once you get past the point of his conversion and really where his transformation as a Christian begins, it is so encouraging because he is such a a wonderful example of someone who was a lover of God and a lover of other people as well. His transformation, as we talked about a week ago, got off to a slow start. But the guy who was a trafficker, you remember he trafficked in humans, in slaves, Then with William Wilberforce, he was one of the key factors, one of the key persons in Britain that was behind the movement to outlaw slavery in the British Empire, which, of course, eventually occurred. Uh, Newton was part of that with Wilberforce. He was a passionate, winsome evangelist, truly a loving shepherd, a true friend of sinners, and a shepherd of God's people. And John Newton grew old and he died. This uh, crazy great evangelist preacher guy who'd done everything right he grew old and died his faith remained vibrant to the end his health did not in 1797 a good friend described newton this way he hadn't seen him for a while he said he looks very old and he got exceedingly fat i'm hoping to avoid that <laughs> second part at least yeah uh, he said himself of his eyesight My eyes are now so dim that I write with difficulty and cannot easily read my own writing, nor a letter from a friend unless written in a large hand with black ink. Sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. At 79 years of age, he conducted his last wedding. This he was doing as a favor for the son of a very dear friend. And his memory at that point was so bad that, and his health physically, he had to sit down repeatedly through the ceremony. And at one point he turned like I would turn to you and say... Tell me, what am I supposed to do next? He completely lost his way. He wanted to continue preaching. He thought he was still up for it, and others knew better. His memory simply was failing him entirely, so he was graciously removed from that as well. Now, that all sounds to me like a rather inglorious end to an otherwise grace-filled life we've been talking about the grace of God in conversion and transformation and here's this wonderful really truly remarkable example of grace in conversion and then in transformation and he gets old fat and dies what is that the way this should go Does, does grace end when you and I get old fat or otherwise and die as we wind down as as age does its stuff to us many of us here know what that feels like Uh, Paul, the apostle, wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15 in a passage about the Christian's future hope. What does God's future grace look like? Paul said, if our hope in Christ is for this life only, we are of most people to be pitied. You know, pity those dumb Christians if they live for God in this life, and somehow that's the end of grace, and that's the end of it all. It wasn't for Newton, and of course it isn't for us as well. Newton experienced in great measure God's amazing grace in conversion and sanctification. But the question begs, what does God's future grace for John Newton look like? What does God's future grace for you and I look like? So when people, unless the Lord calls first, and he very well may, Uh, otherwise all of us are going to follow Newton. We're going to get old, the body's going to wear out, and our friends and family are going to bury our body in the ground, and our spirit's going to return to God who gave it, but really the question then is what next? What does the grace of God look like in your future and mine past this life? In a single word, Scripture says clearly of that future grace that really the fullness of God's transforming work in you and me is that we will be like Christ. We will be like Christ. That's the text we'll start with in just a minute. Further, we're told that and this is, this is so important to remember in the midst of a challenging life on planet earth, the infirmities, afflictions, humiliations, and slow wasting away of this present life, think of old age, are in fact preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17. So e- even as the aging process sort of removes our glory, if you will, the the physical glory we may have, the acuteness of mind, the abilities that we've been given in life, as those fade and diminish with old age, even that process, Paul says, is still working towards our future glory, that there's a a work of grace now that actually continues into eternity, and the glory you and I have, possess, experience in eternity, is affected even by the downsides of our times in this life here and now. Now, this is from 1 John 3, and this is sort of at least the introductory key thought here. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle John wrote, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We've talked about this in conversion. God's grace in conversion makes children of wrath children of God. And, And John writes present tense, we are right now children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children, so that's present tense grace. And what we will be, future, has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. So there's a bunch of stuff we don't know, but this we know. When He appears, we will be like Him because we'll see Him as He is. Now, John doesn't articulate necessarily, but this sounds like the passage Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4, commonly called the rapture of the church, the catching away. But you remember the imagery there is Jesus comes from heaven, and in the air he calls. And those like Newton who've already died, their bodies are in the ground, their resurrection body is given to them in that moment, and they rise glorious to meet Christ in the air. And the text says there that we who are alive and remain We're caught up with them to meet Jesus in the air. And from that point forward, it says you're always with the Lord. So that's that moment of transformation completed, if you will, at least physically. So we're going to see Christ. We'll see him as he is in his glory. And it's at that moment that our transformation into future glory will occur. The end of God's grace work in us is not to be seen in this world in this lifetime or this age rather that transforming grace won't be complete until a future time when we become fully like christ perfect in every way all that we should be nothing that we shouldn't be we would say in a singular word we will be glorious christ is glorious currently we will be glorious like him and the question comes up what does that look like if you say we're gonna glory is the is the best description of what we will be like in the future what does it look like you know maybe uh, what does it feel like? How does that work itself out? We'll at least start with something of what does it look like. Uh, Revelation 1, you can turn there if you want, 13 through 16. This is a description of Jesus, what his visible glory looks like. So you remember in the gospel accounts and into Acts chapter 1, the resurrected Jesus is seen. The body that was crucified is, is has been raised. And people see him. So it's Christ raised, but it's not Christ glorified. So they still see him. He looks like a human being. Sometimes they recognize him. Sometimes they don't. He's resurrected, but it's not glorious. But if you read this in Revelation, you get a sense of what does Jesus' glory look like in heaven? So the description goes this way. John is in the Spirit, he says, on the Lord's Day. And he sees this heavenly setting excuse me he says in the midst of the lampstands there was one like a son of man a messianic term from the old testament clothed with a long robe he's got a golden sash around his chest the hairs of his head were white like white wool like snow his eyes were like flames of fire his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace this would be glowing metal excuse me The voice was like the roar of many waters. This is actually uh, out of Psalm, I think it's 29. God's word has this uh, powerful breaking energy. Well, this would be like the sound of a deep, wide waterfall. It's inherently powerful. Uh, In his right hand, he held seven stars. Those are the messengers to the churches. From his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. If you looked at his face, what you would see is just brightness. Now, some of this, if we say, along with this physical description of of Jesus, there's a sharp sword in his mouth. We look at that and we say, we assume that's a form of metaphor, that it's the power of what he says is like a sword. It cuts, it's active. You know, this is what Hebrew says, it's active and alive. It cuts, it shows things. But as far as the rest of this, I assume the physical description of Jesus personally is apt, that it's what John saw, that it is what he looks like in glory. And in fact, if you think of the appearance of Jesus to Paul, Saul, Paul, on the road to Damascus, it says that he's confronted by this bright light, that Jesus in glory somehow appears, and the appearance is described, there's not only a voice that speaks to him, there's this light And in fact, I think that's the thing, that you see his his, face is like the sun shining in its strength. That's his glory. You also see at the second coming in Revelation 19, Jesus there shares a little bit of the description you get from chapter 1. His eyes are like fire as well as he wears multiple crowns. Jesus' glory is so immense that whether this is in person physically or this is in spirit, means spiritually, John's body, Uh, theologians uh, debate about this is john's body still on patmos when he sees this or has he been translated not sure entirely but whatever his presence when he sees jesus like this the glory is so overpowering he just falls out he can't stand up he can't interact unless god does something to enable him to stand and see and take all this in his glory is so dominant In Jesus' incarnation, think back in the gospel accounts, Isaiah described in this way, no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we would desire him. But now in heaven, after his resurrection, Jesus' appearance is fully and only glorious. Glory, Glory or glorious is probably the best description we can use of him. So absolute transformation of his physical appearance from incarnation to glorious presence now in heaven. In our days on earth, no matter how lovely our appearance, no matter how vital our strength, it all winds down and we, like Newton, get old and die. We're subject to death, dying, sickness, disease, accidents. Even if we're healthy, generally as we age, we stoop, we lose strength, sight, hearing. You you get the picture. It's not a pretty sight. Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8 put it this way. We're like the grass and the flowers. We spring up. And no matter how lovely, how vibrant, how strong, that beauty, it doesn't last. It's very short. But while God's grace in our transformation begins now, we would say with a transformation that's primarily internal, it will find its completion only when we share Christ's glory. That There's a lot we don't know, but this we know, John says, when we see him, we'll be like him. Romans 8, 29 and 30, which we've talked about repeatedly, and it is a key passage about God's grace in the life of the believer, again says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So when we think of our own translation in the future, we will look like Christ. That's the appropriate end of the transforming work of grace God's doing in us. We'll get to sort of ultimate cause for that here at the end. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Now listen to this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul speaks in past tense about a future transformation. And the thought is this. It's so certain if you're in Christ, your future transformation into Christ's glorious appearance is so certain, Paul speaks of it as a past accomplished fact. It's a given no ambiguity. There's no if ands, or buts. As anyone in Christ, you past tense with certainty share in future grace his glorious appearance. Now, will my face shine like the sun? Will you have white hair? Whether you like white hair or not, will you have white hair? Will your skin shine like heated metal? To what degree will, will Christ's physical appearance that John saw and described... To what degree will that be true of us? And so I want to I think through this with us for just a minute and uh, think through maybe a couple of the implications of this. So first let me say, how fully do we share that? My clear, clear answer, no ambiguity, is I don't know. And you don't know and no one else does either. Okay, but, but let's think through this just a little bit. If you saw me standing next to my father, if my dad was still alive and on the earth, you, you could say a couple of things. You would look at us and you'd say, well, they're both human, right? And they're both men. So you'd say, we, uh, we know that they're of the human race, that they share that generic standing. They're both humans and they're both men. But if you saw me next to my dad, you'd say, uh, they look a lot alike, which is to say my physique is almost exactly my dad's physique. I ran high hurdles in high school and college and I didn't know until then that my dad ran high hurdles in college. Some people might accuse me of sharing my dad's humor. That, you know, that could go either way, really, if you knew my dad's humor. But you get the picture that there would not only be that generic sense that uh, Mike and Vincent uh, share this resemblance, but you say, no, they share a very close resemblance. So if someone said, well, that's his dad, you wouldn't be surprised. You'd say, because he looks like him, he sounds like him, he shares those same characteristics. I don't look exactly like my dad, and I don't think we'll look exactly like Jesus. But our image will be so close to his that anyone who sees us will know we're from Christ, we're his spiritual children, and again, in a word, we too will be glorious like him john the apostle if you read through revelation there's two occurrences in which this angel or angels are showing him around asking him questions and directing and twice it's recorded that john bowed down to worship these angels they're so glorious that his impulse as a mortal was simply to bow down and worship them and yet our glory will transcend that of the angels john wanted to bow down and worship. 1 Corinthians 6 says that Christians will sit with Christ in judgment on angels. Our glory will surpass the glory of the angels John was tempted to worship. C.S. Lewis rightly said that if we could see the glory in each other now that will be ours in Christ's future, we would want to bow down and worship. It's true because that's the status or the level of glory we will have because we are Christ's. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49, add this to our future grace glory. It says our grace, God's grace at work in us is glorious, powerful, and spiritual. That, that our, the completion of our transformation in Christ's image is glorious, powerful, and spiritual. Spiritual doesn't mean without a body, by the way. It means without mortality that death and mortality will have already been swallowed up in Christ's resurrection victory so that our body won't be subject to sin and death. Verse 49 concludes this way, just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we'll bear the image of the man of heaven. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 both make the same point. We've tried to make this in this series too, especially on um, the eternal security of the believer your origin is your destiny, guys. You cannot get away from this. Your origin is your destiny, ultimately. You you bear the sinful resemblance of Adam because you're from Adam. That's Romans 5 and it's 1 Corinthians 15. It can't be otherwise. You can't get past your origin. But that notion that you can't get past your origin, then it applies in transformation and conversion. So, the thought is as certainly as you had to bear the image of the first Adam, with that same certainty, you do bear and you will bear the image of the second Adam because you have a new origin. You remember we talked about this. You have a new spiritual birth in conversion. And that birth guarantees what your end will be. If you've been born again through faith in Christ, Christ is not only your point of new origin, he is your destiny. And you share his appearance, just like you did Adam. You can't get away from this. It is a given. As descendants of Adam today, all of us clearly human, clearly descended from God's first image bearer, but also with great diversity. Um, There's not a lot said about heaven in the future, and we'll talk about, I think, one of the key reasons why in a moment. But I think there's a temptation for us to look at the future and somehow be disappointed that the reality we know somehow feels better or bigger than our imagination for a future heaven can give us. Um, And and that's a challenge to overcome. Um, So what does that look like? Do you say, do I somehow lose who I've been and I become something that I don't recognize? Do I somehow does, does God somehow cookie cut cutter stamp me into something in the future that is not recognizable to what I was in the past? Listen to this from Acts 17, 26. Uh, Paul's speaking in Athens, and he said, among other things, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made from one man. So if you think about... The billions and billions of people on the earth that don't look alike, they all came from one man and one woman. That in that first pair, all the genetic information, possibility of humanity was present in that first couple. And what you see is, if you think of life, human life on the earth today, we would say there's incredible diversity, wouldn't we? Some people are tall, some are short, some are dark, some are light. Some have straight hair. Some have curly hair. You get the the picture. There's remarkable diversity all from one man and one woman. So we don't lose our uniqueness. We don't somehow lose the diversity God intended in transformation. When it says we'll be like him, it doesn't mean we'll all look the same. It doesn't mean that we'll lose the diversity that we see currently in the human race, that diversity will continue in eternity. We would say we're from Adam, but we're not clones of Adam. In our conversion, we're from Jesus, but we're not clones of Jesus. Uh, there's a movie, a Tom Cruise movie, I've watched a few times called Oblivion. And there's a guy, and he's sort of a, as oh, a it's sort of a spaceman on earth. And uh, um, you realize at the end that these aliens have come in And they took the the epitome of the kind of person they wanted to run the earth and they cloned him and there's one after another after and they're all the same and that's not what god's doing in us that the diversity that's currently in place in the human race that diversity continues you don't lose your uniqueness in the full transformation of god's grace into christ's image by god's grace the chief thing is that everything we are in redemption will reach its end when each of us not only shares Jesus' glory, but does so in a way that doesn't remove the different ways we share our second Adam's image, but perfects and glorifies them. God isn't homogenizing us in our transformation, but like every snowflake, giving each of us a perfection unique to us, all within the overall glorious image of Christ. There will be continuity with our first life on earth, but without anything short of perfection. Our attributes, bents, talents, giftedness will all reach and sustain the climax of their development. Think of this, you know, scientists, they say that humans use a fraction of our brains, the mental capacities, we use a fraction. What will it look like when God takes the gifts and the bents he gave you, intended to have you, and perfects those, and they reach their full Blossom their for their full bloom in eternity. There's no our imaginations fail We can't imagine big enough for that when we share Christ's glory in the completion of our transformation into his image We'll have no regrets as to who or how God made us But will glory in God's goodness and grace and will delight in being all and only what he means us to be Now scripture calls our transformation sanctification We've said that that means to be made holy, and you remember, holy is to be without sin, and it's to be all that we should be and nothing that we shouldn't be, unique as God intended us. Anyone who's experienced the pangs of their own sinfulness knows something of Paul's cry at the end of Romans chapter 7 when he says, so he's explained this dynamic, this internal conflict that we spoke about regarding our transformation that the Christian has an internal civil war going because there's an old sinful nature that can do nothing but sin. There's a new sinless nature that can do nothing but honor God, and they're opposed to each other. And in that opposition, Christians feel this because they're saved. They feel the weight of sin, and it's maddening. And it's wretched. Paul says, wretched, man, that I'm this experience of sin. I don't want to sin, but I still find myself doing this. And he says, wretched. Now, not glorious, right? My experience, I feel wretched, he says. I want deliverance. Have you guys, uh, depending on what you've done, what labors look like, have you ever been so stinky, smelly, filthy, dirty, depending on maybe a farmer falls down in the muck? Your clothing is covered with muck, and all you can think of is, I am filthy, and I feel it, and I don't like it. And all I want to do is I want to take those filthy, dirty clothes, I want to throw them off, I want to jump in the shower, I'm going to get the soap out, I'm going to lather up, I'm going to rinse down, I'm going to get out, and I'm going to go, ah, that feels so better. You know, all that muck, all that's gone. I think that's a little bit of a hint of what our full transformation will feel like When we don't have any sin clinging to us. It's all gone. It's all behind us. By God's grace in Christ, when we're fully like Him, there's nothing about us that isn't what God intends. And this this alone, if you just said your future and eternity, you're free from all your sin, if you didn't know anything about heaven besides that, that would be enough. If you feel at all the pangs, the weight, the wretchedness of our own sin, the thought that we would be free from sin, guys, that alone, forget glory, that alone feels like a huge, huge relief. Uh, No burning lusts. No cold-hearted hatred. No small-minded bitterness. No exploding head egos, vanity, pride. No struggle with malice or envy. No wishing harm on others to feel better about myself. No crippling self-consciousness. You guys ever just walked in and just thought, I just love to be free of not even being aware of myself. No recriminations, whether they're needed or not. No awareness of sin, no deficiency. We're speaking of this as a law, so we don't say we're putting on glory when we talk about this, but guys, everything God describes about us in our future glory depends on the removal of all sin, all stain, everything related to our sinful condition currently. This depend everything else depends on this. You can't go to heaven and bring this with you, thank God. So we lose something and all the conflict is over. And there's joy and there's peace and all we've got left is the new nature we have through rebirth in Christ. God's grace and sanctification means being clean and at peace beyond imagining in the freedom from sin we'll have in Christ. And I hasten to say this is only true for Christians. And so I ask you bluntly, are you saved? Are you a Christian? Do you know that if you died today, you're Christ because you've trusted Christ and him alone, his saving grace, his saving work, nothing about yourself. Are you Christ? It's only true for Christians. And guys, think of this. So, if we say, if heaven was nothing but all our sin is gone, we'd say, man, that's a good eternal day. My sinful self is gone. All those, imp- that's a good day, right? But think of this. We know that the second death, hell, the lake of fire, is eternal. That's what Scripture says. And we know that in hell, God's righteous, perfect judgment is applied to sinners who've rejected the grace of God in Christ, okay? So there's a divine, just, perfect punishment for their sin. But just assume for a second that God doesn't put any divine judgment on their sin. Just assume that's not even it. But here's a sinful person in eternity with nothing but their sinful self their sinful impetus and motivations, do you think that's an eternity anyone would want? If you know your own sin, and you said, all I have for eternity is my sin, excluding the judgment of God, all I've got is my sinful self. Guys, our sinful self is insane. It does things to its own harm and destruction. And, and hell, apart from God's judgment, hell would be misery forever. For every sinner, just because of who and what they are. So make sure, make abundantly clear, this is only true for the saved. If you're not saved, we cry out to God, save us. Jesus save me, because he will. Uh, talk about, I want to bring up rewards here. So we're, however it looks, we're going to share Jesus' glory. People will look at you and they'll know you're Christ. You're a Christian. You're part of the church what will we be doing? What will we be doing? Luke 17, verses 7 through 10, Jesus told a short story about a master and a servant. He asked a couple rhetorical questions. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Is that what the master will do to the slave? Jesus, no, he won't. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me, Dress properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is no. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. We have only done what we should have done. Now guys, here's the thing. The service you and I render the Lord in our days on earth is simply what we should do. When we obey Jesus, when we say no to sin, when we serve others, all the things that you think of as believers that we're called to, when we do those things, it's just what we should do. It's a given. It's not somehow extra that I obeyed the Lord, just like the slave Worked in the field, came in and served the master. The expectation is that's what you do. And God says to us, this was the whole thing about faith, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. You know, don't pat yourself on the back. Don't break your arm. It's not a big deal. You're only doing what you're supposed to do. But here's the thing. God our Father, Jesus our Savior, and the Holy Spirit our Advocate are so gracious and so loving that when we just do what we're supposed to do anyway... They're determined to reward us. They are determined to reward you and me for the deeds we do, the service we render in the body, the things that we should do anyway. They want to reward us because they're that gracious. And to this point, Jesus is not just our Savior, though he is that, but you know the world will come to know Jesus in the future as a king. We say today Jesus is a king in exile. He's in heaven Because he's coming to the earth, and what does he do when he comes to the earth? He establishes his kingdom because he's a king. And this is one of the things, you see this in David's story in the Old Testament, but this is a paradigm whether the king was in exile or not. Typically, when a king would come in, uh, let's say he conquers a city or he he comes in, he takes over new territory. When he comes in, he would review the service that had been rendered to him before his arrival. And this is exactly what you see in David's life. Again, he's a king in exile through much of uh, Samuel, the records in Samuels before he's brought into his own kingship, 2 Samuel. So the king comes in and he reviews the service rendered to him and then he rewards faithfulness. That's what kings do. And that's what King Jesus will do. And that's why you have passages like 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 3, Romans 14 that all say the same thing. One day all of us Don't think of ourselves here as children or members of the church, the Bride of Christ, but here think of ourselves as subjects of Jesus the King. As subjects of Jesus the King, we're going to stand before him, and the texts say in one way or another, he's going to review the service we've rendered him while he was in exile. And this is what he's going to do. Some of the service you and I render him is unworthy of him motivation what we did said thought didn't do some of it's not worthy of him and there's no reward for that and paul says in first corinthians 3 he says it's as if god takes that stuff it's like stubble from the field he sets it aside he burns it up it's gone but what's left the service rendered christ for christ the right motive the right thing the right time that all gets rewarded in first corinthians 3 again it's said to be like gold silver or precious gems God rewards us for what we should have done anyway. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff as far as our service, but He's going to reward the things done for Him. So God's future grace rewards us for doing those things we should be doing anyway. Then the question becomes, what are the rewards? What do rewards in heaven look like? The big thing, the overarching thing we can say, lots of things we can't say specifically, but the big overarching thing we can say is this, Our reward is to rule and reign with Jesus forever. Our reward is to rule and reign with Jesus forever. Luke 19 tells a parable, Jesus does, and he says there's a nobleman and he went off to receive a kingdom. So he's in his own land, but the kingship, the status of kingship is going to be conferred on him. So he says, hey, I'm going to receive my kingship. And I'm going to come back. So he gives his servants a variety of levels of wealth. And he says, you guys use this in my name, in my stead, for my benefit. While I'm gone, I'm going to come back. So when he comes back, he, one of the guys he inter, interacts with, uh, he says, uh, the guy says, hey, master, you gave me one. Let's say it's a million dollars. And he says, a million dollars? I've made $10 million. And so the king, master, says, well done, faithful servant. You've been faithful in the little. I'm going to reward you with a lot. And he says, you are going to rule over ten cities. So you, you oversaw a bank account and investments, but that is going to be extrapolated. You're going to become the ruler over ten cities. So, so think of it this way: the reward for faithfulness in service was what? More service. The reward for faithfulness in serving the king was more ability to serve the king. You could call it more responsibility. Now, if I tell you your responsibility is to work for Christ, do you sigh? Do you groan? Did I lose you? If I say the reward of faithfulness is more labor, does that sound bad? More service, does that sound bad? So let me, let's put on our imagination hats again and think of it like this if God recreated you and made you a racehorse, I mean like a big thoroughbred, like, like running the races, you'd like to eat oats and hay and all that stuff. But if somebody said to you as a racehorse, what do you love to do? Well, you're born, you're bred to run. That's what you do. If somebody says, racehorse, go run. Do you think the racehorse would say, oh, that just sounds like too much work The racehorse would run because it's made to run, because it delights to run, because it loves to run. That's what it's made for. Or if God made you an eagle and you would eat little bunnies, maybe, and little snakes, or whatever you like to do. So the point is, what do you like to do? Besides eating. I don't know. I think about eating a lot, guys. It comes out, doesn't it? (laughs) I had a memory. This has nothing to do with anything. I had a memory. I thought, gosh, you know. People that come to our house know, we love to sit around the table and eat good food and have conversation. And I had a memory, I was probably four years old, and I was with my little siblings and my mom in the laundry room of a, of a dusty old basement. She was doing laundry, and all I could think of was the little china set that belonged to my sister and the little Vienna sausages I could put on it and eat <laughs> with, my, with my sisters. I, I can't get rid of that, I guess. What does this have to do with anything? Where was I? Oh, yeah, the eagles, besides eating. So besides eating, if you say to that eagle, spread your wings and soar on the drafts and the updrafts that are coming out and fly high and dive low, and do you think the eagle would think it was being punished or ripped off or anything like that? That it's made to be the master of the winds and to rise and fly Guys, I've seen eagles. I've been on the tops of mountains in Montana, and I've seen eagles soaring way, way above me, tuck their, tuck their wings and dive thousands of feet straight down, then spread them out and just start over. It's glorious. The point is this. When we're doing what God made us to do, when we are what He made us to be, doing what He made us to do, guys, it'll be nothing short of glorious. You'll love doing it. You know, if you are a great artist and God says, here's an easel, and here's eternity, and do whatever you want, and there's no constraints, you'd say, I get to do what I love to do. So when we say the reward is to rule and reign with Christ, it's to do so in the ways He's fashioned us for, so that it's an honor to serve in His name, but we're doing so because He's made us to do the things He's giving us to do in eternity. There won't be any downside to it. God's grace in completion of our transformation will not only be perfect, but it will place us in settings where our perfect gifts and abilities are perfectly put on display to God's glory and to our joy. Guys, you remember Psalm 16? What you and I have to look forward to is eternal joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the thing. So whatever we think of in our mind, what does ruling and reigning with Jesus look like? We know it's qualified by these descriptions It's pleasure and it's joy forever. It's never short of that. Uh, Scripture talks about crowns as rewards, crowns of righteousness, life, glory, your crown, Revelation 3.11. We're told clearly we'll reign with Jesus. Uh, We'll reign with him, 2 Timothy 2.12, Revelation 5.12. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. A couple more references on your study sheet in Revelation But what each role looks like in that co-reigning and co-ruling looks like, we don't know. Again, so there's big sort of big bullet points about what our future glory by God's grace looks like, but there's no specificity. God tells us very little about the new heavens and the new earth, so it's hard to know specifically what most of that future grace will look like. I'm excited to find out. That'll be a great time, won't it? But let me tell you one of the reasons why I think God tells us so little About the future, we celebrated a lovely, lovely wedding Friday. It was great. It was super, just super. In fact, I kept commenting at the wedding and the reception afterwards. This is so great. This is the way it should be. So, so a young man and a young woman had courted each other, and they called and they texted and they traveled. And you know what they're looking for? They're looking for that day of consummation. They're looking for the wedding, right? And so the wedding day arrives. Now I know specifically with this couple that the bride didn't know where the groom was taking her for the honeymoon. Didn't know. And you know what? That was just fine with her. But here's the thing. She knew my husband is taking me to some place to do things that he, he loves and he wants to share with me. So I'll be entering into the joy of my husband, something he really likes, a place, an activity, whatever. And also, I know because my husband loves me, that he'll be doing something that he knows I love too. And so you get the point that she doesn't know where they're going. She doesn't know what she'll be doing, but this much she knows, she'll be with him and he'll be with her. And at the end of the day, that's the detail that counts, isn't it? And so what we have in our relationship with Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is his bride, And he's preparing a place for his bride. You remember John's Gospel. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he is looking forward to the day when courtship is over and consummation arrives, when the wedding feast occurs and the groom receives his bride. Why does Scripture record so few of the details of what God's grace in our future state with Christ will look like? It's because the details aren't the point. We will be with him. He will be with us. Every longing will be met. Every desire will be satisfied in a honeymoon that never ends. Now, when you talk this language to a group that includes guys, the guys squirm a little bit because it's like, are you telling me I'm going to become a woman? You know, uh, the church is the bride, and what does that look like? And do I have to think like a woman towards a husband? And and no, we're, we're not saying that, so... Men don't become women as members of Jesus' church and bride. And the relationship isn't primarily physical, and it's not at all sexual. Jesus said in our glory, we're like the angels. You don't marry, you're not given in marriage. But marriage on earth gives a picture of a relationship in eternity with Christ that's a perfect match, a unique union, a delight for bride and groom. And really, this is the thing at the end of the day, guys. To what end does God's grace move us from conversion to transformation to future glory it makes us fit partners for his son the end of all things is the glory of God and your conversion and transformation and future glory is so that we are appropriate spouses in this close unique relationship with God the son so a new, a new Adam and a new Eve, a new husband and a new wife. And we aren't fit to be Jesus' partners through eternity until we are glorious like Him. So God's glory, God's work of grace in your life and mine is making a bride that's suitable for His Son. And that's uh, cool. So how much does the Father loves the Son? He loves the Son, and He loves to heap glory on the Son. Jesus tells us that. And so Jesus the Son, the Son of Man, has, has uh, been born and crucified and raised in His glory, and He needs a bride that's suitable to His glorious stature. And so that's what God's doing for us. We don't know all the details, but we know that when we see Him, we'll be like Him, and we'll be a fit, a fit match for the glory of God the Son. When we see John Newton, it won't be a fat, blind, old man worn out. It'll be a creature so glorious you'd want to worship him, bow down to him today. God's future grace is making each of us into a creature of sublime glory, and he's doing that so that Jesus has a partner adequate and fit for him, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. God's grace work in us is completed only when we're perfectly known and loved by and with our perfect counterpart, the Lord Jesus. There's so much that God is holding on to as a surprise regarding our future grace because the main point isn't where we are or what we're doing, it's who we're with. Augustine put it this way, the future grace that awaits us finally and fully at rest in Christ is said, you've made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And that will be the glorious rest we have. So quick summary, past grace, God breathed life into the spiritually dead, turned children of wrath into children of God. Jesus sought those who weren't seeking him and brought them back to the Father's house. In present grace, the children of God are in the process of transformation turning spiritually infant children into full-grown sons and daughters in whom Christ's likeness can be seen. God is currently using everything in your life and mind towards that grace work of transformation. And in future grace, God completes our transformation so fully that we look like Christ, never losing the diversity God intends in our uniqueness, but conforming us so completely to Christ's perfections that we are recognizable as His redeemed ones as we were in our fallenness resembling Adam. The grace work of transformation complete, we rule and reign with King Jesus in a world without end to the praise of the Father through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Rise with me if you would, and we'll read as the worship team comes up from Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments